Sup freaks, it's your boy Marty Bent here to introduce this episode of Tales from the Crypt. I sat down with Vijay Boyapati to talk about a bunch of stuff, including the bullish case for Bitcoin, uh, personal experiences of moving gold around the world and the stresses that came with that, uh, Jevin's paradox. We we hit it all in the tight hour that we had. I think you guys are really going to like it. This episode was brought to you by our good friends at the motherfucking Cash App. Cash up. You freaks know all about them, but if you don't know about them, let me tell you about them. If you don't know about them, you should learn about them because they're helping you stack sats and sats receive sats, and they're making sats the standard within the app. We're not buying fractions of a Bitcoin anymore. You're stacking whole sats. In fact, you can stack automatically. You can set it and forget it with the new DCA function. Uh, you can buy every day, every week, every two weeks. You can set it and forget it. Again, DCA dollar cost average into sats on the Cash App. On top of that, you can send sats. You can send it into a personal wallet. Make sure you're doing that. You don't want to hold too many sats uh, on a centralized exchange. So make sure you're you're using the ability to send sats from the app to personal custody when you can do that. On top of the sats, you can stack slivers of stonks via Cash App investing. If you do play the stonk game you're, you're buying these dips or whatever whatever's going on out there and your favorite stonk is a little too expensive you can buy as little as one dollar with cash app investing because all this is connected to your bank account there's no waiting stack sats stack slivers of stonks right away there's no three to four day waiting periods you can start right away and guess what cash app may even be your bank account now they have account numbers and routing numbers so you can get your paychecks direct deposited into the app they're becoming a new bank of the future and they have their boost program on top of that, which is helping you save at, pers- at personal, at partner merchants. Uh, you, get a, you get a boost card personalized, and you, you look at who they're partnered with, you put the boost on your shop there, and you save some money. And you can use that to stack sats. It's an incredible product. That's why we have it here. All right, Use the code STACKINGSATS if you do download the app. When you do download the app, it's S-T-A-C-K-I-N-G-S-A-T-S. You're going to get $10, and $10 is going to go to our good friends at Owls Lacrosse. That's Owls Lacrosse. Use the code Stacking Sats. Download the Cash App. Enjoy this episode with the J Boy Apati. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. Tales from the Crypt? Tales from the Crypt. That's the name of this podcast, not Crypt. Um, here, uh, outside, on a Monday afternoon. It's 90 degrees where I am, braving the heat right now. But the uh, the heat has to be braved because I'm sitting down with somebody uh, that I've been wanting to get on the podcast for quite some time. Uh, and wanted to do it in person, but obviously the nature of the world uh, in 2020 has made that very hard. Uh, 
but regardless, we're here now, and we we're going to have a, an interesting hour-long conversation about the good side of Bitcoin. I'd like to introduce you freaks to Vijay Boyapati. Vijay, welcome to the podcast. Awesome. Thanks, Marty. I'm, I'm really excited to chat with you. I wanted to chat with you for a long time, and we uh, crossed paths at a conference. We didn't get to chat very much, but uh, yeah, I've been hoping I could chat with you for a long time. So thanks for having me on. Yeah, Bitcoin 2019 last year, we uh, we met in person, um, did not get the chat at length. So we're here now. Um, again, you're somebody who's written some of probably the most timeless Bitcoin content out there right now with the bullish case of Bitcoin. Um, uh, today, I really want to focus on, we'll, we'll get to the bullish case of Bitcoin, but you wrote a thread um, about just how nascent Bitcoin is as a protocol and how... Uh, com- sort of compared it to, or not sort of, you did compare it to the, the different types of embryos, and they may look similar in the embryonic state, but turn out to be very different when they reach maturity. Uh, we'll dive into that, maybe some Bitcoin marketing and uh, what it's like living in the Chaz. But first, how did you get into all this? Like, What, what incited you to write the bullish case of Bitcoin and, and what drew you towards Bitcoin initially? Yeah, so my background is, I'm a computer scientist. I worked at Google a long time ago, and it was at Google that I got introduced to libertarianism and Austrian economics. And I was really, really interested in that stuff and spent several years sort of doing, going down the rabbit hole of Austrian economics. And I was, uh, I was what you would consider a gold bug. I thought gold, um, was a fantastic store of value. And, um, it was just a good hedge against the Federal Reserve um, doing really crazy things, especially in 2008 and nine. Um, so I guess I, I was already kind of primed to be interested in Bitcoin. I was interested in economics and monetary phenomena. Um, and then in, let's see, I think it was 2011, 2000, I believe it was 2000, I need to go back and look in the blockchain to see exactly what it was, but I had a bet with a friend of mine about the Federal Reserve. They, they had a Federal Reserve, um, one of their committee meetings to decide whether or not to increase the interest rate. And um, the bet was for a single silver eagle, which is a one ounce silver coin. And at the time, silver was worth about $50 an ounce. And I won the bet and I was waiting for my friend to send me a silver eagle. And he said, no, 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 let's, um, let, let me pay in Bitcoin. I was like, what's Bitcoin? And he was like, it's this new form of money on the internet. And I was immediately interested, but I, I didn't know what he was talking about. Um, and it was just a small bet. So I said, sure, whatever. And then he said, okay, I'm going to send it to you, but you need to download this software and run it. And I'm like, okay, I didn't know what he was talking about. So I just downloaded, you know, Bitcoin core and I started syncing and downloading the blockchain and it took hours because I was running it on this tiny dinky little laptop. And I was like, what the hell is this? What am I doing here? (laughs) Like, I had no idea what Bitcoin was about. And so I was like, why is this? Like, because, you know, my conception of software is you download it, you run it, and it's it's working immediately. But it was downloading blockchain. It was taking a long time. And and back then, the core client was less efficient. And it just, it took, and the laptop I ran it on was really, it was a piece of crap. 
Uh, so it, it took a long time. And then he said, okay, here's how you get an address. And I got an address and he sent me, um, I think the price of Bitcoin at the time was somewhere near $10. Uh, so instead of sending me one ounce of silver worth $50, he sent me five Bitcoins. And um, he said, now you can see that I've sent it to you. You can go to this Explorer and see that I've transferred the five Bitcoins to you. And block explorers back then were terrible. They were, I mean, nothing like they are now. It was just like an HTML table with a bunch of, you know, strings of random letters and numbers. And I didn't understand any of it. I'm like, sure, whatever. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, I believe you, you've sent me something. <laughs> and um, that's really what started my interest in Bitcoin, those, those first five Bitcoins. And interestingly enough, that laptop was uh, taken um, by an ex-girlfriend when Bitcoin wasn't worth very much. I let her have it and I, I never got it back. And I asked her in, in, in 2017, I was kind of, you know, watching the price of Bitcoin thinking, wow, that laptop is, is now worth uh, $5,000. Oh man, it's worth $10,000. It's worth, and it got up to what, like a hundred thousand dollars. And I think I, I contacted her when it was worth around, I think $30,000. I said, do you still have that laptop? There are a couple of files on there. I might want to get back. And she said, Oh, I'm sorry. I lost it in a hotel in Minnesota. Uh, so those, <laughs> those, those five Bitcoin are officially dead. You can all thank me, all holders of Bitcoin. I reduced the supply for you. It's not 21 million. It's 21 million minus my five Bitcoin. And of course, minus all the other lost Bitcoin. Um, and you can verify, I mean, it's never moved. Those five Bitcoins are sitting exactly where they first were when my friend transferred them to me. So yeah, that's, uh, that's the story of how I got into Bitcoin. And then, then, you know, I, I started looking into it and the thing I noticed immediately is this is a monetary good. This has, this feels a lot like gold and, but it's digital. And, and one of the stories I've, I've told a couple of times to people is um, when I was a kid, um, my dad, uh, sorry, my, my mother uh, developed a brain tumor and got very ill uh, and you know, she ended up being fine. She had surgery, but, but the story was that my dad was really worried. We grew up in Australia and he didn't feel like he could raise two kids without a support system around him. So he wanted to move back to India and he had a bunch of savings in Australia, but no good way of moving those savings back to India. There was no, there was no way to transfer money to, to India via banks back in the early nineties. So he decided to sell all of his assets and put them in gold and carry a bag of gold to India. Oh, now, crap. you know, I'm sure most people have not done this, but let me assure you, it's a terrifying thing to do. All of your savings in a bag carried on a plane with multiple people um, who are suspicious, who want to know why you're doing this. Why do you have so much? And then you get to India where you have very corrupt institutions and, uh, the police are very corrupt. And so you've got to navigate that as well. And I, I vividly remember how stressed my dad was doing this. And, and so when I, when I first came across Bitcoin and started to figure out what it was, I was like, oh, I understand why this is valuable. I, I know exactly why this is valuable. 
if you want to go to another country and take your savings, this makes it infinitely easier than carrying a bag of gold and much less risky. That is a huge value proposition right there. And there are people across the world in places that are not the best places to live who have built up savings and they're hoping to eventually leave. And they have, they have the ability to do that now with Bitcoin. So it was, it was pretty obvious to me early on what its value proposition was. Um, and it took, it took me a few years to fully wrap my head around why is this valuable? Why can't people just copy it and make a better one? And, you know, wrap, wrap my mind around the issues that I think a lot of people try to wrap their head around when they first come across Bitcoin. But eventually I think I had a pretty good understanding of why I thought it was important and valuable and the economics of it. And that came from my background in Austrian economics. So, you, you know, the bullish case for Bitcoin, which you mentioned, I, I took me a year to write that, but I published it in early 2018. I had most of the ideas, uh, for that article in 2000, probably 2013. And I did a podcast with a friend um, way back, I think 2013 or 2014. And I, he mentioned it to me recently and I listened to it and it was pretty gratifying. I was like, hey, wow, I, I did kind of understand a lot of this stuff early on. Um, and, and it was interesting to sort of listen to and figure out where my understanding was a little bit weak and I figured stuff out over time. Um, so yeah, there, there you go. That's, that's how I went down the rabbit hole. It's, uh, an incredible story. I can't believe your dad carried gold, uh, on a plane into India. That's insane. Yeah. I still can't believe it either. Like just think about how scary that is when you've got two kids and you sold a couple of the houses that you own All everything you have is in this bag. And it gave me, I mean, it's not, it's certainly not as scary as what has happened in the past to some people, but it gave me a sense of all of the people who tried to flee Europe in World War II, who, who wanted to carry some savings out of Europe, like the fear of doing that. Um, and at any point you could get you know, stopped at a checkpoint and someone says, what do you have on you? Let me look at it. Oh, wow, this is really valuable. Why don't I take a cut? Why don't I take all of it? Um, that kind of stuff you only appreciate when you go through it and you have that visceral experience where you understand it for the rest of your life. You're like, I understand why this is valuable. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things that really um, sort of incited my aha moment, even though I was a Bitcoiner for, for a while <clears throat> at this point, but really drove home sort of the value prop of the network and, and the asset particularly is when I recovered um, some Bitcoin from a seed phrase when I was on a trip and had brought uh, like a piece of paper with 12 words on it and actually found myself in a pinch where I needed some money and was able to recover words via an Electrum wallet and send it to an exchange and replenish my bank account within a couple hours. And I was like, whoa, this is this is real. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And you know, one other thing I, I guess I want to mention, because I'm an, I'm an American now, I'm, I'm an American citizen. Uh, and I, I feel like a lot of Americans take for granted how good they have it. They, they don't understand what it's like to live in other parts of the world where it sucks or it's scary. And people want to leave and escape to a place like America. Uh, so it's not not always immediately obvious to the average American, like 
why why should I care about having being sovereign over my own savings? Why should I care about being able to cross a border with all of my wealth if I need to? Um, I think eventually people will start to understand that. You know, I hope things don't get bad in America. I think America's such an important beacon for um, human freedom in the world. I hope bad things don't happen here, but they could, right? It's possible, and it's possible that people may want to leave. Um, but I, I find some of these things are easier to explain to uh, people who've lived in a, a, a shitty place and uh, and have wanted to leave and have dealt with these issues of like, how am I going to get my stuff out? Yeah, well, the political climate in America today would uh, would have you believe that this isn't such a great place to live. Um, there's right. a lot of people. Uh, trying to change change America, uh, but I mean, you've experienced this for, experienced this firsthand. Uh, I guess before we get into the embryonic thread, we can talk about your experience uh, living in the Chaz. What's that been like? Yeah, so we chatted about this briefly before, but um, so I live in the neighborhood that the Chaz is in. It's not right next to me. It's probably about fifteen blocks away from me. Um, but yeah, there were, there were a couple of weeks where we heard helicopters over our house every single night and it felt kind of like a police state. Um, and you'd hear gunfire in the distance and we'd have like large mobs of people walking down the street past my kids, chanting stuff, some stuff, which I, I, you know, I find repugnant. Um, and there was a sign posted on the end of my street, which said wealth is murder. Uh, and that I find that really upsetting because my parents essentially escaped India or left India to find a better life in the West. And to see some of the ideas that impoverished India come over here and be spread by people, especially there's this woman in the Seattle council, her name's um, Kashama Sawant, who's a, she's an avowed socialist. And, and to see someone like her come from India and spread what I feel like is an economic disease um, from a country which was, you know, there was like 50 years where India was a third world nation where millions of people starved because of this economic ideology. And she's spreading it here in Seattle. Uh, I, I find that really upsetting because I came to America as the land of opportunity, the land of freedom, um, uh, the land where people really value excellence and personal liberty. And to see someone cut people down because they're successful is just disgusting. Um, so, yeah, the experience has been uh, jarring and upsetting. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, I feel like it's still a, a tiny minority in America. There's a tiny minority of completely crazy people who are peddling this dead economic ideology of Karl Marx. I mean, it's the 21st century. Who the hell believes in Karl Marx? It's ridiculous. So it's still a small minority, but they're, they're, they're a very loud minority. And in places like Seattle, they do have influence. And that that's worrying. It's something that I think uh, America as a whole, people who care about individual freedom need to pay attention to and, and realize these people are very, very motivated and active they, they want it. They, I think, want to tear down civilization as we know it and replace it with something that existed in Soviet Russia. 
And, and unless we engage uh, and explain why that's a terrible idea, maybe they have a chance of that happening. And, and if, even if that chance is small, it needs to be stomped out as far as I can, as far as, you know, I'm concerned because my, where I am in my life and the success I've had is because of my parents leaving India. If, if they had stayed in India, uh, I wouldn't have anywhere near the economic opportunity that I've had in my life. And it's the, the fact that I've been exposed to a nation which values liberty, um, that's given me everything I have, my family, my wealth, my success, everything. Um, so, you know, I, f- I feel this very deeply and very passionately. Uh, and to see, <laughs> to see this ideology um, rear its head where I live, um, it, it may, honestly, it makes me really angry. No, I, I mean, I can't imagine, especially considering what you've experienced throughout your life. And I think it's a very good point to say that we need to stand up and fight back against this ideology, because even though Marx, Marxism is extremely stupid and, and an economic disease, I completely agree with that. I think the country is at a vulnerable point where uh, people who are uneducated about the ills of Marxism are easily manipulable. And obviously the wealth inequality gap has been uh, driven to a point where it's, it's probably unsustainable at this point. People are looking for answers and maybe this ideology may, um, may seem appeasing to them, but we, I think believe we would argue that we got to fix the money if you want to fix this inequality problem. And it's trying to sort of shift uh, people's eyes towards, hey, here's the real problem. It's not uh, wealth is murder and, and, and people who work hard and get ahead are the problem. It's actually the, the creation of money uh, is really driving why, why you're disadvantaged right now. Yeah, that's exactly right. I couldn't have said it better myself. Yeah, it's, um, it feels like it's becoming more popular, though. Uh, the Austrian economics, and I, and I think Bitcoin is certainly a conduit for that. Do you, you find that uh, to be the truth as well? Yeah, and I think we're really lucky to have the internet, which allows the free flow of, you know, relatively free flow of information. Austrian economics was really um, shunned and ridiculed in the academic community because uh there's a there's an old saying i think it may have been blaise pascal that power creates opinion and uh the economics profession is completely politically captured they're they're dependent on government largesse and so they say what governments want spend more money it's good for the economy inflate the money supply it's good for the economy um they they don't have any credibility uh, because they're they're captured and they don't have any independent thought, and so within um, the academic profession, I'd say that for every Austrian economist, there's ten Chicago school economists, and for every Chicago school economist, they they sort of pretend to be free market types. For every Chicago school economist, there's probably ten or twenty Keynesian economists. So there really are very very few Austrian economists out there practicing in the academic professions and it's usually at very you know the the low tier universities that no one's heard of um but the internet has allowed for the dissemination of different viewpoints and different ideas and i think this is um austrian economics has really taken off since the early 2000s and it was helped 
uh, there was a, the first wave I'd say was the Ron Paul campaign. Um, and that's really what got me super interested in Austrian economics. And I quit my job at Google and I went and campaigned for Ron Paul. Um, and then I think the second wave is Bitcoin. I mean, there's very obvious connection between Bitcoin and Austrian economics and the, the belief in the, the benefit of sound money and a fixed money supply. And, and that the, the money that we should use is a free market money. So I'm really excited, um, not just for Bitcoin, but the influence it's having on people understanding economics, understanding what I think is correct economics. Um, and, you know, the other direction as well, people who are interested in Austrian economics coming along and figuring out Bitcoin as well. Like this is, in my mind, the most important innovation to money in a thousand years. So it's this new subject matter, even not from the investment perspective, just from the, I love to think about economics and this is tr truly new economics. How are you able to create money out of nothing that's valuable? It's, it's a fascinating subject. Uh, it is, but I would argue that it's hard to, to um, have those austrians convert to bitcoin there's a lot of gold bugs in that world i mean there are obviously there have been very popular austrians that that accept bitcoin i think jeff dice the president of mises uh institute right now he's a bitcoin fan um but there's some holdouts that that for some reason or another uh just seem to have this mental blocker when it comes to bitcoin yeah yeah that's a good point and i think part of it is just um some of them are luddites and and just not uh, they're not early adopters of technology. And honestly, it's partly, uh, among, at least amongst Austrian circles, you can go back to um, Murray Rothbard. And, you know, I mean, I'm a big fan of Rothbard's writing, but Rothbard was a Luddite. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't like to fly on planes. He didn't, use, he didn't like computers. He didn't want to use a computer. Uh, he only used a typewriter to write the copious amount of content that he produced uh and a lot of his disciples kind of follow that pattern as well so there's partly it's that and partly i think it's um a, a misplaced obsession with the physicality of gold that it's physical that it's tangible that you can touch it that that's what's important that that's what makes gold uh, valuable and i think it's really mistaken belief and it it was really only I think the neo-Austrians, people who wouldn't necessarily call themselves Austrian school economists per se, or not purely Austrian school economists, it was the neo-Austrians that I think helped me understand Bitcoin, take my understanding to that next level. People like Nick Sabo and uh, Mencius Molbug. Um, these are people who were influenced by Austrian economics, but they're not really classic Austrian e economists. And those guys really understood it very deeply uh, and at a level I think most of the famous Austrian economists al alive today do not understand it. Yeah, actually, I think, I believe the first or second issue of the Bent, I shared Mencius, Moldbugs, um, Bitcoin is a money, Bitcoin is a bubble or whatever the title of that article was where he dives into yeah. um, just the fact that money is, is just a bubble of network effects at the end of the day. Yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah. And it really, it, yeah, that really drove it home for me, uh, sort of putting Bitcoin in that context and, and understanding it from that point of view. But you touched on the 
physical nature of gold and, and how some Austrians cling on to that. I think this is a good opportunity to hone in on that and explain why Bitcoin, even though it's not tangible, it's digital, still has that, that scarcity and, and that can drive value as well, even though you can't physically touch it. Yeah, I, I think scarcity is probably, of all the properties of money that make money valuable, I think scarcity is the most important property. There have been other properties that have been understood since the time of Aristotle. I think it was Aristotle who first sort of elaborated or enumerated the properties of money that make it valuable. Portability, fungibility, verifiability. Um, but I think scarcity is the most important one. And Nick Zabo has a fantastic essay talking about um, the history of money called Shelling Out, which I, I recommend to all your listeners. And he describes it as, as um, these scarce goods that people used early on, things like beads and shells and whatever else they used as kind of proto-money. Um, th those things allowed people to transfer wealth across generations. They weren't used in as money in the same way that money is used today as a medium of exchange where you go and buy a, lo a loaf of bread. This was way before, you know, people were buying and selling loaves of bread in grocery stores, obviously. Uh, but it allowed something that wasn't possible with other species that were competing with humans. And it's an evolutionary advantage that we had over Neanderthals that we could do this. We could figure out that there were scarce things which by themselves weren't valuable, but allowed us to transfer wealth between generations. It's a very powerful thing. Um, and so Bitcoin, I think, gets its original value from the recognition that it's scarce and it, it's been built in a way that it's scarce and it's digital scarcity. And once you recognize that and that it, it has ultimate scarcity, it's much more scarce than gold because the supply is completely capped. Gold, while it seems scarce, uh, actually te a technological breakthrough could make gold as commonplace as sand. Like if it became possible to mine asteroids, then you're gonna have gold everywhere. Uh, whereas Bitcoin has ultimate scarcity and that's a very, very uh, attractive property for money to have because you think if I just get a piece of this and other people start demanding it, my piece is going to get more valuable. Uh, and, and my fraction of the total amount of wealth, if this thing becomes money, can never go down. It's never going to get debased. Uh, so I think... Uh, that was one of the drivers of Bitcoin's uh, value in the early days, along with a few other things, like it was used for illicit payments for a, a while. Um, but I think the scarcity is what people really uh, attach, them, attach themselves to from an investment perspective. Yeah, no, this is a great natural segue into the thread we want to talk about today, too, is you sort of lay out two narratives, two competing narratives that have been going around for quite a while. Bitcoin is digital gold and then Bitcoin as a fast and easy payments network. And the fact that the network is so young sort of confuses people as to, to which use case and narrative will win out at the end of the day. And I think we, we would both argue that yes, digital gold will win out, but that doesn't uh, mean there can't be 
payments systems built on top of the base layer. Uh, but I think we should dive into just how early we are, like you were describing when you got your first five Bitcoin, how to check it on the block explorer. And it was, it was, uh, pretty, pretty rudimentary. Um, and it ha things have evolved pretty, uh, to a, a pretty big degree up to this point, but still, even so with the lack of overall adoption liquidity, frankly, it's still, confusing for some people like uh, fees get more expensive does bitcoin work and i guess you laid out you did lay out these trade-offs in in this thread pretty beautifully so i, I i'd uh, be interested to learn what what incited you to craft this this thread and and um how'd you come up with the embryo example because i think that's brilliant yeah so i wrote about this on twitter and i used the example of the embryos for various species looking very similar in um, when the embryo is first made, like they basically all look like tadpoles, but in the fullness, fullness of time, you start to see the difference in these species as they grow uh, a kangaroo and a fish look very different after, you know, a couple of years. And the point I was trying to make was that in the early days, you had these two competing visions of Bitcoin, Bitcoin, on one side, you had people who believed Bitcoin was um, a, kind of like a decentralized PayPal, a, a payment system that let you do payments very cheaply uh, that couldn't be censored. And then you had another group of people who saw Bitcoin as, as kind of like digital gold and it's very scarce and it's good to own some of it because if it gets widely adopted, then it's going to be worth a lot. And these competing visions kind of simmered in the background for several years and they didn't come to a head until 2015 when the scaling debate became important and people started arguing about whether Bitcoin's block size should be increased. And, and that really culminated in the, uh, the network split in August 2017 when Bcash was created. And the, the debate before that was fierce. People were vicious um, with each other and accused each other of bad faith and all sorts of nasty stuff online. And I, I, I participated in those debates in various channels. And you know, I hope um, I was always polite and assumed good faith. I mean, I remember having debates with Eric Voorhees, a lot of debates over email with him about this. Um, and my view from very early on was that Bitcoin was digital gold. And the reason I think that was the case is that it's really, really difficult to change Bitcoin's protocol, the core rules, the consensus rules that define what Bitcoin is. And the reason it's difficult is that you, you can change, like you can change the software, you can write uh, different software that Bitcoin runs on, but that doesn't mean anyone's going to run that different software. I can I can create BJ coin, which increases the supply from 21 million to uh, a supply schedule, which constantly inflates and say, hey, I've created a better version of Bitcoin and I've read a bunch of Keynesian economics and uh, I think this is better. That doesn't mean that you, Marty Bent, are going to run my software. You'll, you'll look at this thing and say, no way, it's not what I want. Um, so I think a lot of people viewed Bitcoin as like a piece of software that's easy to change, but I think a much better analogy is Bitcoin as a protocol. Um, and Bitcoin as a protocol tells you that protocols are hard to change and they should be hard to change. 
And one of the examples I gave in, in the Twitter thread that I, where I wrote about this was uh, power sockets. Uh, you know, power sockets are all over the place and we depend on them. We plug all of our devices into them. And there are, you know, tens of millions of devices that rely on these power sockets being a certain shape. Uh, so it's very difficult. You can't just go and say, hey, we have a better power socket design. Let's change it and make the shape different to what it is because then all of these devices stop working. So, so to change the design of a power socket, you would need everyone to jump at once. You would need all power sockets to be changed at once and all devices to be upgraded at once. And that's a very difficult thing to do. And the same thing is true with Bitcoin as well. To, to change Bitcoin's block size, you need everyone to jump at once. And not everyone wants to jump at once because not everyone believes that having a higher block size is a good thing. You're sacrificing Bitcoin's most important property, in my opinion, which is its immutability. It's hard to change, which is a good thing, because it means it's hard to attack. If it's hard to change, then it makes it hard for a government to come in and say, I don't want you to send payments to this person, or I don't want you to send more than $10,000 without telling me before you send it. Uh, if Bitcoin was easy to change, then those things could creep in over time. Maybe they wouldn't creep in all at once, but they'd creep in over time. Uh, so the fact that Bitcoin's protocol is difficult to change made it clear to me pretty early on that it can't be decentralized PayPal. It can't have low fees because you can't just increase the block size as you would with a piece of software like Microsoft Office every time uh, you sort of get to capacity where the transactions are filling up the blocks. You just you can't just change it on a whim. Uh, and that's fine if you believe that Bitcoin is digital gold, as I do. It's perfectly fine that the protocol is hard to change. In fact, it's better. It's what guarantees Bitcoin's uh, uh, monetary policy, uh, a fixed supply. That fixed supply only attracts savings to Bitcoin if it has credibility. And the credibility comes from the fact that the protocol is hard to change. Uh, so that was that was the gist of the thread. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because I think the, the scaling debate and the fact that the market chose the Bitcoin, which has immutability, which is the legacy chain, the original chain, really settled that debate. And it's interesting that there's still some people who haven't figured that out. They haven't figured out that that, that's, that was core to Bitcoin from the beginning. We just didn't know it until the scaling debate happened. And I think it's one of the most important things uh, about Bitcoin versus any other altcoin. It went through this test. It, went, it, it sort of passed through the fire and survived. Uh, when all of these companies were saying, no, 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 Bitcoin needs to be upgraded. It's a piece of software. It needs to be upgraded. All these incredibly powerful companies in the space. Uh, and they couldn't do it. They couldn't, you had all of the biggest companies in the space trying to get this to happen and they couldn't do it, which really, to me, cements the fact that Bitcoin has a credible monetary policy and that I feel confident having my savings in Bitcoin, knowing that there won't be more than 21 million Bitcoins because you can't change the consensus rules. It is incredibly different, difficult. Um, and I, there was a fellow, I've forgotten his name, um, who wrote about this. He called it the ossification of the base layer, the ossification of the consensus rules. 
And his point was that we have reached a stage where it is essentially impossible to hard fork Bitcoin now. Uh, the people who were running Bitcoin and the businesses involved in the space will not consent to a hard fork. Uh, I wish I remember his name, but he, he also made the point at some point, there's going to be an ossification of Bitcoin to the point where people won't accept soft forks either. Um, and and I let me describe what soft forks are for people who um, don't necessarily know. It's a it's an upgrade of Bitcoin that's backwards compatible. And to go back to the analogy of the a power socket protocol, you have this shape for the power sockets, and you have these old devices. But you can upgrade the power socket in a backwards compatible way. And a backwards compatible upgrade would be something like the grounding hole. So you imagine going back to like the early 20th century when there was just two prongs uh, and you have all these devices with two prongs and then they think, oh, it would be nice to have a ground in these power sockets. And it's okay to add that extra ground because the old devices still work. That's a backwards compatible upgrade. And that's what soft forks are. They're upgrades that don't kill people who are running nodes on the network and their, their nodes stop working. Um, so, so we um, we're looking at Taproot uh, as as a, a soft fork that might happen soon, which will be an upgrade that if you want to run it, you can run it. But if you don't want to run it, that's fine too. Your node's going to keep running. Um, but eventually, I think even soft forks uh, are going to be rejected, and and people are going to say. We don't want Bitcoin to change at all. We want it to be completely immutable. And any change that we want uh, will happen at higher layers, things like the Lightning Network and, and other second layer protocols that are built on top of Bitcoin. Yeah, this is cause for a lot of concern trolling, though. How can you know that the network will be secure and that a fee market will develop uh, if there is a scarce supply of Bitcoins and scarce block space? How... How can this develop, VJ? Uh, that's one <laughs> that's a, of the. Uh, that's a great question. I, it's not something I've written about in much detail, but I, Pierre Rochard has um, spoken about this and written about this a little bit. Um, the way to think about the block subsidy is it's um, it's it's kind of a tax paid by hodlers of Bitcoin. People are ho holding Bitcoin to secure the network. Uh, and eventually that subsidy is going to go away completely. I think in 2140, so in about a hundred, a little over a hundred years. Uh, and actually most of the subsidy is going to go away in the next eight years. Like 90, 99% of Bitcoin will be mined uh, in, in the next 10 years. So then miners to secure the network and to, to verify transactions, they're going to have to rely on transaction fees. And so if you want to have the same level of security, you're going to need transaction fees to increase. And, and I think that's going to happen naturally just by the fact that Bitcoin is growing in adoption and we have a one megabyte block size. So it's going to fill up and you're going to have to pay more to, to get your transactions in there, which is fine. That's totally fine. Um, and uh, I, I guess... The thing that I remember Pierre saying is that the level of security we have now isn't necessarily the level of security that we need to have in the future. Um, right now, if you send a large amount of Bitcoin, you can um, the recipient can wait for 
you know, three or maybe six blocks before they feel really confident that they have that Bitcoin because you're not going to get a block reorg. That That's the scary thing, right? You get Bitcoin and then you get a block reorg and it gets taken away from you. Um, in the future, it could be that you need to rely on more confirmations. That's fine. Like maybe instead of six confirmations, you need to rely on 15 confirmations. And I think that's fine because I think Bitcoin is going to be used as a monetary base primarily. It's going to be like the backbone of a new financial system. And, and I wrote about this a little bit in the thread we were just talking about, um, where I think people got confused about what Bitcoin was and they thought it's a payment system and uh, everyone can own like a tiny fraction of Bitcoin and send a tiny fraction of Bitcoin. I don't think that's the case. I think of Bitcoin as um, kind of like the way the gold standard worked in the 19th century, where it's a backbone of a financial system and settlement happens between these big financial institutions where people transact with paper back and forth under a gold standard. And then eventually the banks settle with each other, you know, maybe every six months or a year by moving the gold from one vault to another. Uh, and I, I think that's going to happen with Bitcoin as well. Uh, we just live in this period where it's possible for average people like you and me to get a decent amount of Bitcoin. Like you can pay, you know, $9,000 and have a whole Bitcoin. Um, and to me, that's the equivalent of living under a gold standard and having like 50 gold bricks in your house. It's just, that's a very unlikely thing for anyone, but, um, Rockefeller to have but because we're so early on we can do that we can have the equivalent of a bunch of gold bricks in our house but eventually I don't think that's going to be the case I think most people are going to have very very small fractions of a bitcoin that are owned kind of um, via third parties not in the same way that you own stuff uh, dollars uh, in a bank but with uh, re relationships that use things like lightning and multi-sig and that sort of thing. So you don't fully trust them, but you you have some benefit of using a custodian for transactional usage. Yeah. And a lot of people get hung up on the term digital cash too, and really misunderstand the word cash, particularly thinking uh, of cash that they use in a bodega. Like it's quick, instant, no fees, uh, when really the definition of cash refers to the bare instrument aspect of this token. And that really throws people through a loop when they, they see that fees are going up and they expect it to be like a hundred dollar bill at a bodega. Uh, when, when really it's, it's a digital bearer asset more akin to the gold that banks are trading as reserves between each other. Right. Exactly. Right. And yeah, cash is essentially it's the, the meaning of cash is bearer instrument, something that is valuable in and of itself and is not an obligation to something that's valuable. And and cash in uh, the 19th century was gold, the physical gold. Uh, and you had, um, it was really inconvenient to move the gold around. So think other things developed like promissory notes where you got a note of paper which said this is worth one ounce of gold and you transacted with that because it was easier and safer and more secure to do that. Um, yeah, but you're right. A part of the problem of the debate was that early on people saw cash and they were like, oh, that means transactional usage. It means low fees, 
No, it means that it's something that's valuable in and of itself. Yeah. And then and another thing I think we should try to debunk right now is dive further into is the fee market and uh, the Ethereans will say you need a minimum viable is issuance, but you were describing uh, Taproot. If that gets implemented, uh, it would make UTXOs, uh, it would give them more utility at the end of the day, right? You'd be able to do more with, by combining signatures and you have cheaper multi-sig and a bunch of other stuff, more uh, scriptability, I believe, as well, which makes a UTXO more uh, usable and uh, makes it more useful and this is actually an idea that Pierre Rochard incepted in my brain a while ago and I'd be interested to get your thoughts about applying Jevons paradox to to Bitcoin UTXOs like as they become more efficient and more useful it'll drive demand therefore driving more transaction volume and, and value at the end of the day well I, I confess I am not familiar with <laughs> I'm not familiar with this paradox I have not heard uh, Pierre talk about this, but yeah, I, I, from what I understand, I'm not an expert on Taproot myself, but I do understand that it, it's going to make multi-sig much more powerful uh, and, and make it more powerful in the sense that um, it'll be very easy to do M of N where M, of, where M and N are arbitrary, so arbitrarily large multi-sig. And it'll also make it so uh, you reveal less when you when you do multi-sig so you can have like a bunch of people who have partial con control of an address but you don't know who any of those people are that's very powerful as well um, where you can enter into arrangements with other people and they don't know who you are you don't know who they are um, things like that add to the privacy of bitcoin and i think that's a very powerful thing as well um, you know, sorry, I'm going on a tangent, not answering your question, but I, I actually think the base layer starting out not being very private was totally fine. Uh, and I, I kind of view the lack of privacy in the base layer as a Trojan horse that gets um, governments and law enforcement agencies to kind of uh, ignore Bitcoin and say, hey, this isn't that bad it's not going to be used for criminal purposes because it's very easy to trace and, and the trojan horse is that it it gets in a much bigger threat to uh nation states which is a monetary base which they can't inflate um but i have confidence that over time uh, privacy will improve either at higher layers or in the base layer and taproot is something that i feel like will improve privacy uh, at the base layer by allowing multi-sig where the parties don't really reveal anything about themselves. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And yeah, so Jevons paradox basically states it's a paradox because, and it's applied uh, most famously to the oil industry where uh, as you become more efficient with an asset or a good, uh, it's a paradox because you think you'd use less of it and you can do more with less, but you find that you're actually consuming more because it's more powerful and ah, yes. more utility. Yes, yes. Now, thank you for giving me the summary. Now I, now I know what it is. Now I actually have heard of that. Uh, I think a good example of this is Uber with the taxi industry. Uber made um, transportation much more efficient by you know, providing an, a nice app, <laughs> essentially providing a nice app and 
providing a review system so that you could weed out bad drivers and reward good drivers. And that small insight made the taxi industry much, much more efficient. And it wasn't the case that because it was more efficient, people were like, oh, I don't need to use it as much because it gets the job done more efficiently. They said, I want to use this a lot more. Um, yeah, that's a great point. I, can, I, I totally see that, that people's desire for using UTXOs would go up as the, their, their ability to use UTXOs in different ways, like as we're talking about better multi-sig through Taproot, there would be greater demand for UTXOs and the greater demand would spur the fee market as well. Um, yeah, I had not thought about that. That's a really cool argument. Yeah, no, I think I think we may see that play out. It's just a theory right now. And yeah, Pierre, Pierre and I have discussed this in back channels, I think. Uh, and I've been trying to to elaborate more on it more recently because I, I just personally can't stand the... 21 million caps going to shoot Bitcoin in the foot and you need a 1% to 2% inflation, tail inflation rate if this is going to survive. Yeah, well, people are people. so indoctrinated with this inflation ideology because it's taught everywhere. It's taught in schools, the, pop, the, the media, the mass media believe it. It's just ingrained into society that uh, we can't have a fixed money supply. And I mean, it's it's been ingrained into people for almost a century now since gold was demonetized in the U.S. I think if you went back to the 19th century and told people this, they would laugh in your face. <laughs> uh, so we just live in strange times that you you have to even explain this, like that it's good to be able to keep money that doesn't get inflated away. No, I think it's especially important to understand as we live in this deflationary environment from a tech perspective, like everything around us is getting cheaper to produce yet people can't save money still. It's, it's pretty insane. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a good point as well. The tech industry is an example where you have massive deflation where the price of things go down all the time. And one of the arguments that a Keynesian will use for why you need inflation is if you live in a deflationary environment, why would anyone buy anything? Like, why would you buy something if you could just hold your money and then uh, it'll, you can buy more with it tomorrow. And so they think that because of that, people not buying stuff, the economy will go into a tailspin and crash and we'll be in a perpetual depression. But look at the tech industry. Do you like say, I'm never buying a phone because I can wait longer? No, you say, cool, there's a phone here that's way better than my phone and I get benefit from using it now. I know that they're going to get even better, but I'm going to buy something now with my money because I get such a tremendous benefit from it. So this argument that deflation causes depressions and, I mean, if any industry is vibrant and um, you see see innovation, it's the tech industry. We got a... Uh... And uh, no, I agree. And it it's crazy how indoctrinated people are in that in that mindset. Oh, we need inflation. Deflationary spirals will happen. And so that's a paradox I don't agree with. Is the paradox of thrift and uh, this idea that if we have a deflationary currency, people are just going to hoard. And I wrote about this in the newsletter I think a month or two ago. It's just completely. I mean, it's a Keynesian line of thinking that everybody's just a data point in a model 
and they're going to act as the model predicts they will, which is completely asinine, where people have different time preferences, they've accumulated capital with different starting points and different uh, amounts of capital, and will deploy that differently. Individuals are going to make different decisions based on what their needs are at any given point in time. I always found it really funny because I remember having these debates in when I was at Google before Bitcoin and I, I was explaining to people why I thought gold was a better money and people would say, well, it's deflationary, that's bad, no one's going to spend it. And I was like, well, use a simple thought experiment. Imagine if I have like a few gold coins and I have no house and I have no clothes and I'm lying in a gutter on the street, but my gold is getting more and more valuable. And suddenly my 10 gold coins can buy a massive mansion and a, a nice suit and a car. Am I going to stay living in the gutter or am I going to spend my gold? I'm going to spend my gold. I'm, maybe I won't spend all of it, but I'm going to spend it. It doesn't take much to figure out that people will spend their money when they get benefit from spending their money. Yeah. Everybody's brainwashed. It's crazy. Not everybody. Obviously, we're not. Uh, maybe we are Bitcoin brainwashed, but we just brainwash uh, you in a good way, <laughs> <laughs> right? And uh, well, you brought up earlier the uh, the fact that right now in its current state, Bitcoin's pretty easily traceable, and this is probably a topic we we can end on. I know you got to go here soon. Is uh, the Twitter hack, and it's becoming evident that that hacker was an idiot and probably will get caught. And arrested due to the way in which he moved his transactions but a big debate sprouted up as all these accounts were getting uh, taken over and, and um, tweeting out uh, basically a bitcoin scam hey send me bitcoin i'll send you back 2x whatever you send me and a lot of people were were uh, saying that that's bad press for bitcoin but i think you would argue otherwise i know i think it got it exposed a lot of people to bitcoin and I've made the point in the past that uh, it takes time before you, your interest in Bitcoin develops to the state where you realize that it's worth having some savings in Bitcoin. And I call this a number of touch points. And for different people, they need a different number of touch points. And those touch points could be hearing it, hearing about it on the news or hearing about it because of a Twitter hack or hearing about it from a friend they trust. For me, it took, you know, a couple mentions from people that I really trust as being smart before I realized, hey, I need to pay attention to this. Uh, so I kind of view it as um, any press is good press because you're just getting more touch points. People are being exposed to this. And eventually, you know, the average person is going to hear about Bitcoin from 10 different people that they know about. Uh, they're going to be like, why do I not own any of this? Um, so I, I don't see it as a bad thing. And e even in the early days uh, when Bitcoin was being used for Silk Road, uh, a lot of people who didn't want to use it illicitly got exposure to it and they read about it. There's, there are a lot of stories from the early days where people who read about Bitcoin in Wired and its use in Silk Road thought, well, what is this thing? And they went and bought some. Uh, so I think people's exposure give, give them a chance to understand its utility and its value to them. Um, and uh, money is always going to be used for bad things because it's the it's the, the global medium of exchange. You can't get around using it. Um, and if we're going to talk about 
money being used for bad things, the US dollar is used for orders of magnitude more worse things than Bitcoin is. Bitcoin's usage for illicit trade is small potatoes compared to what the US dollar has been used for funding wars, drug cartels. Saddam Hussein was found with pallets of US dollars hidden in the desert <laughs> in Iraq. Uh, so if you're going to talk about money that's used for harming the world and used for, for criminal activities, it's the US dollar. Yeah, I mean, we're witnessing that today as uh, family members of the judge presiding over uh, a class action lawsuit against Deutsche Bank for helping Jeffrey Epstein move money, money between bank accounts. Um, sorry about that. Um, it's, I mean, it's being, it's being really driven to the fore today that, uh, this elite pedophile was using the U S dollar and skirting KYC AML laws at that, uh, to do pretty nefarious things. Um, I guess we'll end it on that weird. It ended uh, on the Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah, note. I know you got to go here, Virginia. <laughs> but uh, do you have any any parting thoughts or or anything you want to get um, out there before we wrap up here? I, I I feel like we're at a really interesting point in Bitcoin's history where it's on the doorstep of being very widely used and being geopolitically significant. I don't think. This is my just my opinion. I think Bitcoin achieves geopolitical significance once it attains a large fraction of gold's market capitalization. And right now, I think gold is still worth somewhere in the order of 20 to 50 times more than Bitcoin. So a lot, it's a lot bigger than Bitcoin. And but gold has geopolitical significance. Nation states around the world look at the price of gold. And when the price of gold spikes, they start worrying because it's a signal that their monetary policies are failing and that people don't uh, take them seriously anymore and that their savings want to leave those currencies and go into something that they can trust. When Bitcoin gets to that level, I think it's going to have that same geopolitical significance. And I think we're one, one maybe two bull markets away from that happening. So I think now is a really good time to learn about Bitcoin. Um, there are some fantastic resources out there to learn about it your your podcast being one of the best um, so i just encourage people to to learn about it and find people who are open-minded who have experience or background who might be interested in in bitcoin and tell them about it and and why you think uh, they would benefit from having some of their savings in this non-sovereign uh uncensorable unconfiscatable non-debasable money uh, go out and tell people about it like you do. Yeah. Well, you're too modest, VJ. Uh, your bullish case uh, for Bitcoin is probably the piece I most share with people who are looking to learn about Bitcoin. I send them that and then I send them to Parker Lewis's gradually then suddenly and say, hey, do your research, dive in all of this and and you'll come out with a better understanding of what's going on. So, I want to thank you for uh, putting out such incredible content and just this conversation alone. I think people really appreciate this episode because I think you do an incredible job of breaking down 
these somewhat complex Thanks, topics I really in very that. lucid form. Yeah, and um, I can't wait to do this again. I can't believe it took us this long. Hopefully, ne next time with it definitely whiskey. won't take us next this time with a whiskey. To, I hope uh, do our second episode. Yeah, yeah, definitely, and in person, hopefully. Um, well, I hope you enjoy the rest of your afternoon. Uh, again, thank you for your time, and um, it's been it's been an honor talking to you and, and uh, seeing your beautiful kids behind you. Thanks, and, Marty. I had a lot of fun. Background. Cheers. All right. That's all we got this week, freaks. Peace and love.